So I'm excited to share with you guys. This is actually a first for me because I've never had the privilege of closing out a series. So I'm excited for that. We're going to look at the last passage um, in Romans chapter 8. And um, one of the things that I love most about being a parent, and I know some of you guys are probably sick of me talking about my kids because it seems like every time I'm up here I bring up one of my boys, but I just learned so much from them and God has taught me so much about himself through my two little boys. So this story that I'm about to share is a lesson that I learned from my son Xander and a swimming pool. A few years ago, my wife Katie and I took Xander up to Flagstaff for just a long weekend, a little family vacation, and the hotel that we were staying at had a pool. And we don't have access to a pool here in town because we don't have a Y membership or anything like that. So we wanted to take advantage of the pool and utilize it And up to this point in his life, Xander had never gone swimming before. I think he was only two, two and a half at the time. And he had never gone swimming. He'd never really even seen a pool before as as far as we knew. And so we wanted to him, we wanted him to experience this. And we tried to prep him as best we could for the pool. So we went to the store and we bought this floaty that wrapped around his chest and, you know, his arms went through it and we let him pick it out and it was green with this little crab on it. And he was so excited to put this floaty on and to actually use it. And we were describing it to him and said, hey, buddy, this is for your safety and you have to wear this thing because it'll keep your head above the water and it'll keep you safe. And I was trying to explain to him, like, I'm going to be there for you and I'm going to help, like, guide you in the water and you don't have anything to fear And when you first get in the water, it's probably going to be a little bit cold. But don't worry, your body will warm up and it'll be fun. We'll be able to splash around together. And they have these things called pool noodles. And we can smack each other with the pool noodles. You know, and his eyes are getting bigger and bigger as I'm describing this pool to him. And I said, you know what, Xander, the best thing of all is when you get up out of the pool and you go to the edge and you jump in. And I'll be there and I'll I'll catch you. And so he is pumped to go to this pool and, and to swim. And so we get to the hotel, you know, we unload everything. We, we put his swimming trunks on and his, uh, you know, those pull-ups that can, you know, waterproof pull-ups, whatever those are called. And, um, and, and we get to the pool and, and he sees the body of water and he starts to freak out. And nothing went as planned. In my head, I was envisioning him being so excited and just like wanting to run and jump in there. But he was not having it. I mean, we were, we were able to convince him to just step into the water on the top step of the stairs, you know, that lead into the pool. And he was okay with that. He was okay with just being, you know, two or three inches in the water, just having his, his feet wet. But he did not want to get in the water at all. And I realized that he was extremely insecure in his ability to swim because he had no ability to swim. And he was so petrified And that being insecure was holding him back from experiencing the fun that that pool had to offer. And as his dad, who knew how fun pools could be, I didn't want him to just hang out on the top step of the pool. I wanted him to come in and to enjoy the pool and to splash around and to have fun. So I knew that I needed to build up his confidence and his security. So I made it my mission to, to make him feel secure so that we could have fun 
in the pool. So it, I mean, I don't know how long it took. It maybe only took five minutes, but it felt like 30 minutes of trying to convince him to come into the pool. Finally, you know, I kind of had like pull him a little bit, but, but I, I got him to, to get off that top step and to just float in the pool. And I was there floating with him and, and he started to like realize like, oh, okay, I'm not going to die in, in this pool. And it was amazing because once that level of security was, was laid, and once he realized, wow, dad is actually here with me and he's going to keep me safe. Once he realized that, he turned into a whole new kid. He started splashing around. He started practicing his doggy paddle. And he was throwing water at mom and laughing. And then he even got enough guts to get up out of the pool, walk to the edge and jump in. This is a picture of him doing that. And he did it again and again and again, and we were having so much fun that day. And Xander's security was never in himself and his ability to swim. His security came in, in my ability as his father to be there for him and to catch him. And I realized this lesson that morning. That security is so essential for life. And when we have that sense of security... We live life different. We shed our insecurities. We take a little bit more risks. Man, we jump off the edge of pools. And that's the lesson that I learned that day. And our text this morning is going to touch on this idea of security. We're going to be in the last part of Romans chapter 8. And I think, whether we want to admit it or not, we all struggle with insecurity. I know I do. I can kind of act like this guy right here. Like you might be wondering, how does this play in with insecurity? But so often we try to hide behind things and we, and we try to mask our insecurity and play it off as though it's no big deal. Like, oh yeah, we're cool. We're not insecure at all. But, but we all struggle with it. And you know, one of my insecurities, I have many, one of them, um, and I can thank Pastor Clovis for this, is that I'm 30 years old and I'm starting to bald. <laughs> Clovis was the one that pointed this out at the run through. I wasn't going to say anything, but I said, you know, he's, he, he offered to Photoshop some hair in for me. But, you know, I'm not only losing it from the back, I'm losing it from the front. And pretty soon those two are going to meet and I'm just going to be rocking the cul-de-sac. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'd be okay if my hair was turning gray because scripture calls that a crown of glory. But what happens if you lose your hair before you have the chance, to, before it has a chance to turn gray? You know, what happens then? So that, that's one of my insecurities. Another one on, on a more serious level um, is my insecurity as a pastor. Because the reality is I haven't been a Christian very long. And I'm up here on stage teaching people who have walked with Jesus longer than I've been alive. And, and if I'm honest, sometimes I go to bed at night especially as I'm preparing for a sermon like this, and I lose sleep over this lie, and I know it's a lie, but I struggle with it. Who are you to stand up on stage and teach anybody about God? You're so messed up. You don't even know that much about God. You've only been walking with him for like a little over 10 years. And that makes me insecure, and I know it's a lie, but I struggle with it. And I think... 
if we were all honest, we all have something that we struggle with. And this text is going to point to this idea of security. And my hope is that God would use this text to deepen our trust in him. And that that trust would lead to a greater sense of security in him. And that that sense of security would cause us to live life a little bit differently, a little bit more bold, that we too might walk up to the edge of the pool and jump in, trusting that God will be there. He will be there for us to catch us and to keep us afloat. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to discover this as our, our, as our big idea this morning, that in Christ, we get to exchange our insecurity for Jesus's ultimate security. That once we've placed our faith in Jesus, we get this awesome privilege to exchange our insecurity for Jesus's ultimate security. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Maybe. There we go. And before we dive into that text and start unpacking uh, that big idea, I, I want to refresh our memories because Paul's going to draw not only from the first part of chapter 8, but he's going to draw also some truths going back to chapters 1 through 7. And chapter 1 through 7, it covers a lot, but one of Paul's overarching themes that he's trying to get across in those first seven chapters is this idea of justification. And if I know that's kind of a churchy term, we don't usually use that in our everyday language. But if we were to define it, it's simply how God can declare a sinful, guilty person to be right and innocent in his eyes. So in chapters 1 through 7, one of the main things that Paul talks about is this idea of how God, who is holy and perfect and set apart and can't be near sin, how, how that God can look at a guilty person, a sinful person, and say they are right and they are innocent. So Paul lays out the gospel message in a nutshell, and he says, look, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, we had our backs turned against him. When we still hated God, he loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And that when we place our faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, when we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he was the one that died in our place, that he lived the perfect life that we could never live, that he died the death that we deserve to pay the penalty that we could never pay. When we believe that about God, and when we place our faith in him, we are made new. We are adopted into his family. So, so that's what Paul kind of lays out in chapters 1 through 7, this idea of justification, how God can look at a guilty person and declare them right and innocent. And then in chapter 8, the series that we've been in these past five weeks, we've discovered that once we place our faith in Jesus, we have this beautiful privilege to make some exchanges. And in week one, we talked about how we get to exchange our shame for God's approval. In week two, we talked about how we get to exchange our addiction for freedom. Then we talked about how we actually get to exchange our family. We're adopted out of Adam's family and into God's family. We talked about how we get to exchange our disappointment for hope. How we get, and last week Scott talks about how we get to exchange our past for a bright future. And so Paul starts off this section of scripture in light of everything that he's just covered from chapters one up to this point. He says this, what then shall we say to these things? What should we say to everything that's just been laid out so far in the book of Romans? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
So, so what can we say to all of this? Here's what we can say, that God is for us. That the God of the universe, the one who, who, who spoke into existence the stars and the galaxies, the one who at this very moment is sustaining everything, that God is for us. The whole book of Romans points to this truth that the God of the universe is for us. That should bring our souls great security and comfort, knowing that God is, is for us. Now, we have to be careful because this is one of those passages that everybody loves, but that can be so misused and so misrepresented and, and taken out of context. Because God is not for us necessarily in every choice and decision that we make. It's not like we have God in our corner who's this ultimate genie that's going to do everything for us. No, God is not for us when we choose to sin. He's not for us in that type of way. We can't interpret this passage apart from uh, his, his purpose for us. Going back to, to verse uh, 28 that Scott touched on last week. We have to understand that God is for us in a way that produces the good in us that he has purposed and planned all the way back from the beginning. God is for us to become more like Jesus. God isn't so much for us that he's going to protect us from every adversity and every trial. No, God is for us in becoming more and more like Christ. And that should bring us great security and joy. And Paul is going to further show this truth that God is for us by asking some rhetorical questions. And so in the next verse, you know, and rhetorical questions are meant to, to pull the reader in. They're not meant to be answered right away. They're meant to be chewed on and pondered and thought about. And so he says in the next verse, He, God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all. You stop and think about that for a second. God who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That, that, that's pointing to this idea that God is for us. He's so much for us that he gave his son for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Just real quick, this isn't, again, the prosperity gospel. God won't graciously give us everything we wish or desire. God is for us, and he will graciously give us all things that we need to be more like Jesus. This is Paul's argument from the greater to the lesser. If he's already given us Christ himself, why would he withhold anything less? So Paul's asking us, and he's making us ponder. He's like, man, if God already gave us Jesus, if he didn't spare his own son, why would he withhold anything else from us? It's pointing to this truth that the God of the universe is for us. He says in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, going back to chapters 1 through 7. God is the ultimate judge. Picture a courtroom. This is courtroom talk right here. Picture a courtroom. God is the ultimate judge. You're on trial. Paul's saying, look, if the ultimate judge, the one, there's nobody above him. If he declares you innocent, if he declares you right, then you can rest assured that, that you are innocent and right. Again, not because of what we have done. It's because of what Christ has done. We place our faith in that. So, so Paul's kind of painting this picture of if God is the ultimate judge and he's declared you right, who on earth would be able to walk into that courtroom and bring any charge against you? Their words are not going to stand. We have the God of the universe for us. He's declared you innocent and right. That, that should bring us great security 
That should cause us to live life a little bit differently. He goes on in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's going back to to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Again, courtroom talk right here. Who is going to condemn you? Because you have to remember, it was Jesus who died and who was raised and who at this very moment is interceding for us. We've talked about how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Likewise, Jesus himself intercedes for us. So if there's anybody, Satan himself, anybody who tries to come and condemn you, Jesus is like, hold on a second. No, no, no. I was the one who died. I was the one who was raised. Your words don't stand. The one who died, the one who was risen is interceding for us. Man, that should bring us great security. I mean, much like the same way that my words brought Xander security enough in that pool to to make him, you know, come off that, that ledge. So these words should bring us security and cause us to live a little bit more boldly in our faith, recognizing that there is nobody, not even Satan himself, that can condemn us. They can bring any charge against us that will stand. We should have the freedom to enjoy God and all of his goodness. To live life a little bit more boldly for him. And so that leads us to our first point. And that a secure faith leads to boldness even in the midst of fear. Secure faith leads to boldness even in the midst of fear. And one of the stories I thought of um, when I was going through this is a story of the 12 spies. A lot of you guys probably remember this. You know, the 12 spies, they go out, they spy the land of Canaan. They come back. They all say to Israel, man, and to, and to Moses, this, this land is plentiful. It's awesome. It's amazing. Ten out of those 12 spies were shaking in their boots, though. Because, man, there were giants in the land. And they said, we're just like grasshoppers to these guys. And all of Israel gets in this just uproar and they start shouting at Moses and Aaron, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die? Yes, we were slaves, but I'd rather be a slave than come out here and die to these monsters. And then two guys, Joshua and Caleb, they step up and even in the midst of all the fear that's going on, they step up and they're like, hold on a second. Don't you remember that God is with us? Man, these people, their protection is gone. They were like bread for us. Don't you remember when we crossed the Red Sea and God split the water? How are you forgetting that at this moment? These are just mere people. God is for us. And in the midst of all the fear, it's these two guys who step out because they understand, man, we can live life different because God is for us. We don't have to fear these people. I want that kind of faith. I want to be more bold. I was having a conversation with a guy yesterday, my father-in-law, and he has a, he has a friend who's going through um, a very uh, difficult time right now because she's dying of cancer. There, there's, there's no chance of her, you know, making it out of this. And she is so at peace with it. And he was just describing this to me. And she's still living boldly for the Lord. And she's recognizing that, yes, I'm going through this trial and this adversity, and it's not fun. But man, it has given me such an opportunity to point people to Jesus. And so she's living out her faith boldly, despite the fear that that word cancer brings to so many of us. 
And one of the questions I've been asking myself and, and the question that I want to ask you this morning, because again, I can struggle with insecurity. I'll be the first to admit it. But the question I've been asking myself and that I want to ask you this morning is this. How boldly have you been living? And I want to borrow Paul's rhetorical format here, ask you not, not, not to answer this right away. Chew on it for a little while. Ponder this question. Reflect on your life. Say, man, how boldly have I been living? Because I, d- I don't know a lot. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Okay, I have a lot to learn. But what I do know is that there is a direct link between security and boldness. And it's the people that I've discovered in my life who are most secure in their faith that live out their faith the boldest. I want that in my life. And so I've been asking myself, how boldly have I been living? Because a secure faith, when you know who you are in God, a secure faith leads to bold living, even in the midst of fear. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we're going to see is that a secure faith leads to stability, even in the midst of struggle. You can put the word peace in here. If you don't like the word stability, you can put the word peace in here. It's, it's the same idea. The secure faith leads to stability or peace, even in the midst of fear. Paul goes on in verse 35, and he says, again, another rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then this laundry list of things. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Paul has experienced all these firsthand. He's speaking from experience. Will will any of this have the power to separate us from the love of Christ? And then to drive his point home further, he quotes Psalm 44, 22. And he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's point is, To say, look, church, God's people have faced persecution and trial and even death for quite some time. People just look at them and consider them sheep to be slaughtered. Will any of that, including death itself, have the power to separate us from the love of God in Christ? And his answer in verse 37a is a resounding no. Of course not. And as a matter of fact, when we look at other scripture in his word, we discover that not only will those trials and those hardships and those persecutions not have the power to separate us, they actually grow us to be more like Christ. It's this amazing thing that these things that look like they would separate us from God, God actually uses them to grow us to be more like him. Some scriptures that support this. James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Who counts it a joy when when you meet trials and hardship and difficulty? It's crazy talk. We don't want to count those things as a joyous occasion, but we can when our hope is in Jesus because we know that those trials lead to something greater. This idea of steadfastness, stability. That even in the midst of all the chaos, you can be rock solid. You can have peace even in the midst of cancer, even in the midst of uh, being in the land of giants like Joshua and Caleb. And you can have this, this rock-solid faith that says, man, the God of the universe is for me, and I know everything around me is chaotic, but my soul has stability. It has peace. 
So I can count this trial as a joyous occasion because I know God is going to use it for my good. Good doesn't mean easy. Good means more like Jesus. Again, Romans chapter 5, crazy talk right here. We rejoice in our sufferings. No, we don't. You can if your hope is in Jesus. We rejoice in our sufferings because that suffering is going to lead to something greater. It's going to build our character. It's going to build our endurance. Ultimately, it's going to build our hope. And so I don't know what situation you might find yourself in this morning, but I pray that these words from Scripture would strengthen your faith in Him and that you would recognize that the God of the universe is for me. And even though at times I might feel like because of my trial, He has separated Himself from me, like, oh God, I'm going through this, where are you? Even though that might feel that way, We have to remind ourselves that God's word and his promises are more true than our feelings. And that his promise is that for those of us who have placed our faith in him, he will use those trials and those hardships and those sucky times in life to make us more like Jesus. That's a promise that we can cling to. And I'm not saying we just throw our feelings out the window and pretend like, oh, it doesn't hurt. No, it hurts. It's horrible. But we can cling to this promise that God is for us. He's shaping us to be more like Jesus. And his promise is that there is coming a day. Scott talked about this last week. There is coming a day when this moment, no matter how hard it is, will be a past moment. And we will be able to look back on the past and say, that was good. Not because it was easy. That was good because it helped me to become more like Jesus. You know, shortly after I got married... Katie and I, um, we moved into a house, you know, we have all the bills and everything that comes along with adulting, and, and I got laid off. It was, it was right in the middle of the recession, and I got laid off. That was not easy. I was stressed out because here I am, newly married, I have another person to take care of. I had three jobs at the time, but, but the, the, my primary job is the one I got laid off of. And I'm like, what, what am I going to do? This is horrible. How am I going to pay bills? Like we're going to be living on the streets. Right? And I'm freaking out. But as I look back on that over 10 years later, I realize that being laid off was a good thing. Again, not because it was easy, but because that opened up the door for me to start working at the church full time. And I can say I've become more like Jesus because of that. So ultimately it was good. Not because it was fun to go through that, but because I look back and I'm like, man, God grew me during those times. He grew Katie and I together, and that was good. Again, another story. My wife and I, and I know other people in this room have struggled with this. Infertility. And I'll tell you, week after week and month after month and year after year of wanting kids and not having them hurt. I hated seeing my wife on Mother's Day celebrate with the other moms, but, but at the same time have so much pain in her heart because she wanted a kid herself. And that hurt, and that was not fun going through that season. But today, I get to look at these two little goobers in the face. And I can look back on that season and say it was good, not because it was easy, but because it led us to be more like Jesus. You know, a stable faith 
has the ability to, to, to look past the incompleteness of right now to the fullness of the future. And that's why we can be stable, that we can have peace even in the midst of struggle. That's the second thing that we see. The third thing that we see from this text is that a secure faith leads to stabi- uh, triumph even in the midst of defeat. Triumph even in the midst of defeat. Paul's going to go on in verse 37 to say, No, in all of these things, in all of those trials, all, those, all that hardship, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I love this phrase, more than conquerors, because it's this idea of being a super conqueror. Of being, you know, you just overwhelmingly conquer. It's, it's kind of like this image right here. When you have an army of 30,000 against one. It's like your opponent doesn't even stand a chance. You don't, you don't come out of that battle just barely with a victory. No, you come out of that battle as an overwhelmingly conquerous person. And Paul's saying, no, no, those things will not separate you. Those things will actually grow you to be more like Jesus. And you will come out of those trials and of those hardships victorious. Yes, you will have scars. Yes, you will have battle wounds, but you will ultimately come out victorious. Scripture does not promise to make followers who just cope with adversity and just trudge through with this like, woe is me mentality. My life is so hard. I'm just plugging away until I enter eternity. Man, that doesn't impress a watching world. Scripture does not make those, promise to make those types of followers. Scripture promises that for those of us who are in Christ, we will emerge from those adversities and those trials victorious. Not because we are so great. Not because of anything we have done in and of ourselves. We come out victorious because our hope is in a God who has already conquered. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. This is point two right here. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We can be super conquerors because we serve a God who has already conquered. He's already won the battle. And so Paul can say this, man, those adversities, those trials aren't going to separate you. They're going to actually make you victorious. And Paul is simply underlining this, this principle that has governed the way that God has worked from the beginning. You read from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and there's this truth that God uses apparent defeat to produce ultimate victory. He uses the things that seem to defeat people and even defeat himself, and he flips them around, and he comes out victorious. 2,000 years ago, on Good Friday, which we're going to be celebrating in just a couple of days, Jesus died. That seemed like a huge defeat. The disciples were, I mean, this was the Messiah. He wasn't supposed to die. What is going on? God used that apparent defeat, flipped it around, and three days later rose. We're sitting here today, 2,000 years later, because of that victory. And so God, it's just the way that he works. He takes these things that seem to defeat us and he uses them to produce ultimate victory. What a promise that we can cling to in the times of adversity, knowing that he will use those things, those sufferings and those hardships for our good and to make us more like him. 
We have the God of the universe that is for us. And all of these truths are pointing to that. That God is for us. He wants us to be more like his son, Jesus. And he will use even the things that seem to be defeating us to produce in us something greater. And then Paul finishes verse 38 and 39. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a little bit of Paul's testimony here saying, Look, I am certain that there is absolutely nothing in this world or in this universe. I don't care if it's an angel. I don't care if it's Satan himself. There's nothing in life. There's nothing in death that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that that truth sinks down deep into our souls and causes us to trust him a little bit more, to place our security in him enough to where we live life different. Because we have nothing to fear. There's nothing that's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this passage touches on this doctrine that we call eternal security. It's this idea that once you place your faith in Jesus, you are eternally secure. That you can't lose your salvation. And that's a doctrine that we hold to here at Cornerstone. We believe that once you genuinely place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins... Once God has so done a work in your heart where you realize, man, I am separated from God. My sin is separating me from him and I need Jesus. He is the only one who can bring me into a right relationship with him. When you recognize that and when you take that step of faith and you say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I realize it's not about me. It's all about what you've done and I'm trusting in you. When you come to that place in your life where you surrender your life to him and you trust him, we believe that, that you can have eternal security, that you don't have to worry about losing your security. What that does not mean is that you have license to sin. Like, oh, I'm just going to say this prayer and then I'm good and I can live however I want. Should we sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Paul addresses this in Romans 6. Does not give us license to sin. We just simply recognize that salvation is not about us trying to maintain our good works, trying to maintain anything. It is about God keeping us. No one will snatch us out of his hands. He who started a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We can have security in our salvation. We can lay our head down at night knowing that even though we will sin, God has forgiven us. And that should cause us to live life a little bit different. It should cause us to, to take a little bit more risk, to be a little bit more bold, to have a little bit more peace and stability, to, to live a little bit more victorious and triumphant. Because there is a world that is watching us. And we have a, such a great opportunity to represent Jesus well and to point people to him and say, man, there is more to life than what we're living for. And so I'm already over. I'm going to run through some next steps really quick to help us apply what we've learned so far today. And so the first thing that we can do is to identify and take one bold step of faith this week. Whether that's inviting somebody to church, sharing your faith with somebody, joining a community group, signing up to serve somewhere, identify that bold step of faith and then take it. 
You know, if Xander never took that step off of that top stair in the pool, he would have never enjoyed the pleasures of that pool and all that it had to offer. And much the same way, if we don't take a step off that top step in the pool, we miss out on experiencing so much of God. So, so, so for you, what is that step that you need to take? God will be there for you. Just remind your soul, the God of the universe is for me. So whether that's inviting somebody, sharing your faith, what for you is that step that you can take? Identify it and then take it. The second thing is to finish this statement on your index card. So you also have an index card in your bulletin. Um, you don't have to use the index card. If you're the artsy-fartsy kind of person, you want to put this on like a canvas or, or you know, make an art piece out of it, that would be awesome. But, but finish this statement. In Christ, I am blank. I am free. I am chosen. I am secure. You know, we've, we've gone through this series and we've talked about all these different things about who we are in Christ. And, and so what has God put on your heart over these past six weeks? In Christ, I am fill in the blank. And then put that somewhere so you can remind your soul. Because strength is built by repetition. And sometimes we just need to remind ourselves again and again and again that in Christ, I am free. In Christ, I am free. In Christ, I am free. And eventually our faith will start to grow stronger. So that's the second one. And then the third one is to memorize Romans 8, 31b. And look, I'm 30 years old. I'm getting old. It's, it's hard for me to memorize scripture. All right. Uh, but, but this is an easy one. It's easier than the one I had first thought about memorizing. So we're going to, I promise, we can memorize this before we leave today. So I'm going to ask you guys to do something a little bit different. If you could all stand, if you guys can stand really quick, we will have this memorized before we leave. Romans 8.31. We're, we're going to read this together. We're going to say it out loud. Okay, are you guys ready? If God is for us, who can be against us? All right, God, sink that truth down into our hearts. Let's say it again. If God is for us, who can be against us? All right, we're going to say it really loud, like, like we mean it, all right? The band sings loud. Let, let's, let's, let's be loud, all right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. God, I ask that because of this truth, we would live life differently, and that we would not leave this building today the same. I think if we do, we miss the point completely because we have the God of the universe that is for us and we are so grateful for that because we know that we don't deserve it. But you were there. And God, you are shaping us and molding us to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And you're even using the difficult things in life, the things that seem to be so defeating and you're using that to make us more to be like him. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that in the midst of the trials and all the difficulties of life, you are with us. You're carrying us. You're keeping us afloat. And God, we look forward to the day when we get to see you face to face in all of your fullness. But until that day comes, God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. God, that we would live life a little bit more boldly. That we would understand that there is a world out there watching us wondering if this whole Jesus thing is worth anything. So God, give us opportunities this week to go out to be a light for you. Give us boldness to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, 
visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.